0: Uh, Today's Bible reading will come from Job, which we have been uh, going through. Uh, There'll be two sections, one in Job 38 and then one in Job 42. So if you'll turn to Job 38 first and we'll start off with that Bible reading. Uh, Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused a dawn to know its place, that it might take hold? Of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is like it is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of the deaf been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take to it its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the numbers of your day is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? The next reading comes from Job 42, 1-6. Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and repent in dust and ashes.
1: Thanks Josh for that reading, Ooh, All right. yes, uh, big warm welcome to everyone here this morning uh, and uh, thank you Nick Crook as well for sharing about OMF, it was really great to hear. Uh, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors of the church along with Ben who uh, is our senior pastor, away this weekend on a well-deserved break. Uh, First, a few announcements before we get into um, our passage for today. Firstly, I want to say a big happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Um, We rejoice with the mothers and their their families today uh, among us. We also mourn with those who have lost their mothers and the wives here who have lost their husbands. Uh, And we grieve with those who long to be mothers but aren't there yet. Uh, SLE Church, we want to be a place where we uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, and today is another day in that way, in that vein. Uh, A couple of other quick announcements. Firstly, with home groups, Uh, we hope and pray that Church at Home Groups has been encouraging to all of us, Uh, and we know it's hard work. Relationships take quite a fair bit of emotional energy um, and commitment, and I know many of us are already feeling tired uh, from this big and busy year that's happened already so far. Uh, And the encouragement is please keep making home groups a commitment for your week. Uh, If you're not able to make it to your home group, then please let your home group host know. It can be a little bit discouraging uh, for your home group uh, host if people just simply don't show up. So please keep that encouragement and bear that in mind. Uh, membership classes began on Wednesday evening as well. We had our first session over Zoom, and it was encouraging. It was encouraging to see lots of people there. Uh, and if, you're, uh, if you missed that first session, that's okay. Feel free to message me, and we can definitely catch you up during the week. So if you're still interested and keen, uh, but you feel like you felt like you missed the first session, by all means, please come uh, and connect with us in the second session. Uncle Mike is going to spend the first half of the time uh, talking through SLE Church's history. I had a look at the uh, PowerPoint, and it's really fascinating. Uh, and then in the second half, I'll talk through our church's mission and vision. And that'll be hopefully uh, an encouragement as well. So our next session, uh, this Wednesday night over Zoom. We come now to our Bible passage for today. So let me pray. Let me ask God to bless us as we hear from this word. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak. You reveal yourself, not only here to Job, but also to us. And so we ask, Father, that by your Spirit we would hear you speak, help, you, help us to understand your word. We pray that you'll help us to understand it and grapple with it and wrestle with it. Because it is a surprising word. So help us see these words with clarity. We pray, Father, that you'll bless us to help us as well see your Son and how he makes sense of it all too. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory and our joy. Amen. April 24th, 2019, 8 p.m., Event Cinemas in After 11 years and 21 movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, my favourite movie franchise, was now weaving all of their stories together in its climax. I was now sitting in the cinema, awaiting to see Avengers Endgame. I love the series so much, that I had booked tickets to this movie weeks in advance, and I even presented them to my wife, Steph, who was also a big MCU fan, I presented them to Steph as our wedding anniversary gift. But she got sick that day and couldn't make it, so I brought along the next best thing, Andrew Chin. Now, the hype around this movie was massive. I was so looking forward to this movie. I don't think I can remember any other movie I have so looked forward to to watching uh, prior to this. I went into the theatre with one thought as I sat down. Please do not stuff this up. Three and a half hours later, I walked out of the theatre with another thought. That was satisfying. Well... After 28 chapters in the book of Job, four sermons, God is now about ready to show up. The hype around his appearance as the reader is now massive. One thought keeps running through our minds as we turn our pages in our Bibles. Please, God, say something to clear all of this up. Will the appearance of God leave Job satisfied? Will his appearance leave us satisfied? Before we get to uh, God's appearance, a few things to finish up beforehand. Uh, First, we're looking at chapters 29 all the way through to 42. Very big task at hand. Uh, First, Job gives his closing arguments in chapters 29 to 31. In what is increasingly becoming a court case, Job has presented his arguments and rebuttal to what his friends have been saying. They have been constantly saying of him, you are guilty of some sort of sin, which is why you are suffering and under God's wrath. But Job has held steadfastly to his integrity and we the reader know that job is right he is an innocent man so in the final chapters of job job summarizes all that has been said before uh, in chapters 30 uh in chapter 30 verse 16 to 31 he again he repeats all of his feelings he's just kind of summarizing all that's been happening he summarizes the terror that he feels has been turned upon him that his soul has been poured out and affliction has taken hold of him That even at night, he is in pain. There is this kind of nightmarish feeling as we read through these verses. When you get to chapter 31, verses 5 to 35, Job spits out a whole long list of ifs. What ifs? If I have done anything wrong, if I've done this, if I've done that, then I will bear it on my shoulders. I will take it. But, as he cries out in chapter 31, verse 35, let the Almighty answer me. So Job sticks to his integrity, he sums up, he yearns for God to appear and answer his questions. He demands it. Case closed, Your Honour. No further questions. The defence rests its case. The words of Job are ended. And about here, we're expecting the rumbling of God to come onto the scene, but we get a bit of an odd surprise. A new witness jumps into the witness box A man named Elihu pipes up and begins to speak and speak and speak and speak. For six unanswered, unchallenged chapters, he speaks and speaks. But who is he? Uh, If you've got the outline downloaded, you'll notice I call Elihu enigmatic. He's a bit of a mystery. We find out in chapter 32, verse 6, that he's a young man. Initially, he was a little bit timid to speak with all of these older people uh, debating each other. Uh, It seems that he has been there all along with the three friends, but he doesn't seem to be labelled as a fourth friend. Uh, All we know is that he's just there. Maybe he was looking after the horses or something. Also, we learn in his introduction in chapter 32, he's a bit of a hot-headed man. Angry with Job's friends for failing to answer Job's rebuttals. Angry at Job for all that Job has said. And on a few occasions, he speaks with the angry, youthful zeal of a young man. Chapter 33, verse 12, he says that Job is wrong to claim innocence. At the end of chapter 33, he tells Job, You be silent while I teach you, Job, something about wisdom. Then chapter 36, verse 4, he claims to have perfect knowledge. If I'm not mistaken, I think he's a teenager. (laughs) Despite all of that, his message is basically the same as the three friends. God is just. He punishes the wicked. Job, you have sinned, and you need to recognize that. So I'm actually, despite the fact that he takes up a fair chunk of space, I'm honestly not sure what Elihu is doing here. In chapter 37, he does go on this kind of God-like speech where he asks Job, Job questions about creation, and that kind of does build a bridge. It prepares us for what God says next in, chapter, in, the, in the next few chapters. But otherwise, it's actually a little bit hard to know what to make of him. So, for now, I'm happy to stand in line with a legion of other pastors and teachers and just who find Elihu enigmatic, a, a mystery. So far, though, it feels like we've just kind of been teased along. Elihu's lengthy speech delays what we've been wanting to hear since Job opened his mouth in chapter 3. We've been waiting to hear from God. So as Job finishes his closing arguments, his friends may have noticed some clouds collecting and gathering in the west. As Elihu speaks, the wind begins to pick up, and so by the time Elihu finishes, a gale of storm has whipped And then out of the whirlwind, they hear the unmistakable voice of Yahweh. Chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Yahweh speaks and gets right to the heart of the issue. Who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job has spoken in a way in which he believes he is entitled to answers, demanding answers. But he questions God in a way that reveals his lack of knowledge. He doesn't know everything that's going on. And so God comes onto the scene and he challenges Job. Dress for action like a man. Get yourself ready. I'm going to turn the tables on you and I'm going to ask you a few questions and I want you to answer me. Now why does God do this? Why does he turn the tables on Job? Why not just answer Job's questions? Well, let's run quickly through what God says to find out why. The first thing that God does is lifts Job's eyes and broaden his vision of things. He lifts Job's eyes from the narrowness of his own wisdom and the narrowness of his vision, which is so focused right at the moment on his suffering and God's justice. God opens wide his field of vision so that he can take in the entirety of creation. Chapter 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what? On what were the bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy? See, God asks Job, where were you when I measured out creation's foundation? Where was Job when God laid the foundations of the world? Answer, nowhere. Who decided what should go where in creation? Job? Not me. And it's these sorts of questions and these same answers that keep flowing through this entire section. Job has no answers to give. Verses 8 to 11, God asks, who created the oceans and set the seas with their boundaries? Not Job. Verse 12 to 15, have you made the sunrise each day on the wicked and the righteous? No. Verse 16 to 18, do you know how big and deep and wide this world really is? Tell me, Job, if you know this. Job remains silent. Verses 19 through to 30, God continues his tour of creation and the weather. And as you read through these these verses, God seems amazed at the wonders of his own creation. And then from verse 31, God lifts Job's eyes from creation up towards the cosmos. Look at those stars, Job. Look at that constellation. Did you do that? Did you put them there in place so that mankind could look up and work out the seasons? No? Okay. Remember the big questions that Job has been asking so far. Why am I suffering the way that I am? Why is God being so unfair? Why do the wicked continue to prosper and the righteous suffer? God is not being just. Is God going to get around to these questions? Well, after taking a brief walk around creation and the cosmos, God turns and he looks at Job and he invites him to the zoo. Uh, And more questions come from God. God asks Job a bunch of questions about the lion and the raven, the goat, the wild donkey, the ox and the ostrich, the horse and the hawk. Question after question, 33 verses, 66 lines of poetry in total. All these questions about these animals and, and we're, we the reader, we're sitting here and I think you'd be forgiven for asking the question How is this all relevant to this suffering man, the ostrich? When was the last time you meditated upon the ostrich? I'm taking it not recently. What is the purpose of all of these questions? Some have accused God of bullying Job with this kind of onslaught. And, you know, when you, when you read what God says next at the chapter, in the start of chapter 40, it almost sounds like he is bullying Job. He says this in chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. It almost as if God is saying to Job, Who are you to argue with me? And Job's response seems to indicate that he has been bullied into submission as well. So you have a look at verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer twice, but I will, not pre- I will proceed no further. Now I want you to imagine for a second that the book of Job just ended right there. Right? That was the final verse of the book of Job then I would probably say that the whole point of the book of Job and the whole point of this discussion is that God just does not like to be questioned. I am a big God. Know your place. Sit down and be quiet. But God isn't doing that. He's not doing that. He's not just bullying Job into submission with his questions. In chapter 40, verse 6, as God moves into a second speech, also filled with a bunch of questions, we begin to see God's wisdom in all of this. So Job basically responds that he's got nothing further to say. He recognises how small he is, but God pushes the issue further. Verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Again, get yourself ready. I'm going to ask you some questions. Answer me if you can. Then you see in verse four, in verse 8, God asks Job, you want to say that I am in the wrong. You want to condemn me to make yourself feel better. But then he says in verse 9, are you like me? Do you have an arm like mine? Can you thunder with your voice like mine? See, this is where I think God is getting to the heart of the issue. When Job questioned God's justice and demanded answers, he was essentially saying that he could do a better job than God. If Job was in charge, things would run smoothly. I mean, isn't that what we're all like? When suffering hits and when we complain about our situation, aren't we basically saying... And aren't we we basically complaining that we would do a better job of our circumstances than God? If we were in charge, none of us would choose or appoint suffering in our lives. We would not mess up our lives like that. So God questions that notion. Verse 10. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in all, all. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. You think you can do a better job, Job? Get dressed. Sit on the throne. Go take it. Do what I do. And if you can do it, then I'll give you your due. Of course, no one can do that. God is God and we are not. The creature is not the creator. There is no way any person could take on that job. And so God brings the challenge down a notch. Okay, don't take the throne. That's okay. But I want you to have a look at some special creatures of mine. Let me ask you some questions about them. So in chapter 40, verse 15, through to the end of 41, God points to two huge beasts, behemoth and leviathan. One a sea creature and another a land animal. Both of them massive in their description. Tails like cedar trees, power rippling through their muscles, teeth of terror. When God describes these beasts, He's read through the description. It's almost as though God looks at them proud, like, wow, take a look at these guys. I made them. Now, a quick word. There's been heaps of debate over the centuries as to the identity of behemoth and leviathan. It's interesting in the the tour of the zoo before, right? God names the different animals, but here he just calls them behemoth and leviathan. So who are they? Some Christians believe that they're dinosaurs. I think that's probably reading a little bit too much into the poetry. Others think that they could be real-life animals like the behemoth is a hippopotamus and leviathan is a crocodile. But the description of them doesn't exactly fit the plainer descriptions of the other animals earlier, like the donkey and the ostrich. Plus, the leviathan apparently breeds fire. Right. If crocodiles breathe fire, Australia would be the most dangerous place in the world. Now, we don't exactly know what these beasts are, but... We are told what they represent. They represent unbridled terror and power. Verse 16, speaking of Behemoth. Behold his strength in his loins and the pow- his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. Uh, verses 14 to 15, speaking of Leviathan. Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields shut up as closely with a seal. Verse 20, out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. You can see pretty clearly that God seems really super impressed by these beasts. But the point of pointing to these two beasts come in these verses. Verse 24, speaking of Behemoth, Can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Verses 1 and 2, speaking of Leviathan. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? I love verse 5. Will you play with him as with a bird? Will you put, a, put him on a leash for your girls? Can you imagine this scene where you come home, you're a dad, and you say to your daughters, Girls, <laughs> I've got a great surprise for you. I've brought home a new pet. He's big. He's a little bit big. He's a bit slimy. But I want you to meet him, and he's just gorgeous. And you bring him into the garage, and they're confronted with this massive dragon. The girls scream and a ball of fire erupts and engulfs them. It's a ridiculous scene. God points to these two creatures bragging about their size and he asks Job, can you tame these two beasts of mine? Can you put them on a leash? You can't do that, can you, Job? You weren't there when I made the world. You don't understand the things of this natural world. You cannot control or tame these two beasts that I've made. That's what God says. So what is going on here? What, how is this all relevant to Job? God's wisdom is revealed in the questions that he asks of Job here. Do you remember a few weeks ago, we saw how Job's friends had a very narrow view of God. Their wisdom was super narrow and unhelpfully used to smash Job when he was down. But then the week later, we saw that Job himself didn't exactly have a wide wisdom either. Job was immensely frustrated and confused. What he knew of God and how God should act was not lining up with his life experience at the moment. And so now here comes God. But instead of answering Job's questions, he takes Job on a tour of creation. Why? Because Job needed his view of God expanded, and he needed his perception of himself lowered. Job needed to be reminded that God is God, and Job is not the effect of all of this is to humble Job completely. Right at the end of his speech. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So Job begins by recognising that God is God. That God can do all things. The second half of verse 2 there is critical for Job. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job has been complaining that God's justice was missing in action. But with God's appearance on the scene, he now realises that God was always in control and that God's plans and purposes never fail. In verse 3, he repeats God's challenge. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Who is this that speaks as though he knows everything? And again, Job recognises that he spoke without understanding. He is humbled. And he goes on, verse, 40, uh, verse 4. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known, repeating what God has said. And Job replies, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes, verse four again God repeats his challenge job repeats god 's challenge and in verse five job responds now you remember all the way back to our first sermon in chapter one, we noticed that job referred to God as Yahweh. we learned that job was an Edomite, he was not an Israelite, and so the big question that was left hanging there was how did someone who was not an Israelite, someone who wasn't God's, uh, part of God's people, how did he know Yahweh? How did he know God by God's covenantal name? And here in chapter 42, verse 5, we get our answer. Job had heard of him. Somehow, way. Job had heard about the works and the deeds of Yahweh. He had learned wonderful things about Yahweh, so wonderful that he then oriented his whole life uh, to worship Yahweh. He knew Yahweh, he trusted Yahweh, and he followed Yahweh. And so Yahweh called Job a blameless man, upright, and one who feared God and turned from evil. Job had heard about Yahweh, but now, see in the second line of verse 5, now he had seen Yahweh. I think part of the reason why Job is satisfied, even though his questions have not been answered at all, part of the reason why he's satisfied is because he has seen Yahweh. The presence of God filled the heart of Job, and it was enough. And so Job repents in verse 6. Now, we've got to be super clear about what Job is repenting of. So let me explain what Job is not repenting of. Let me come from the negative. Job is not repenting of some sin that has caused his suffering, right? He's not humbly acknowledging that he is a sinner and needs to repent of that because that is what his friends have been saying all along. That's what they've been arguing. They've been arguing, Job, you're a sinful man. You've done something massively wrong. And they kept saying, if you repent, then everything will be okay. You'll be restored. We'll see later next week, Job does get restored. But Job's repentance here is not a vindication of his friends, He's not proving them right. So what is Job repenting of? Now just a bit earlier in God's speech to Job, in his final speech, God, speaking about Leviathan, says this. No one is so fierce that he dares stir Leviathan up. Who then is he who could stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I think this helps us see what Job is repenting of. Job realises he's never given anything to God that God doesn't already own. And because of that, God doesn't owe Job anything. See, Job realises that he's been presumptuous, he's been demanding towards God. He wanted to put God in the dock and grill him. Job cried out, remember, I will ask of God and he will answer me. But here, Job realizes that how wrong that was. As another preacher puts it, Job is repenting of hiding God's counsel and demanding an explanation from God as if God owed him one. Job comes to learn the lesson he preached to himself back in chapter 28, verse 28. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to repent is understanding. Job repents of his narrow wisdom. He's come to fear the Lord. He repents of his demanding attitude. He fears God and learns his crucial lesson in wisdom. Here's the crucial lesson he's learned. That it's not important to know why he was suffering it was more important to know the God who knew why he was suffering. See, whether God revealed those reasons was completely up to him, but for Job, the best thing about his day was that he saw with his eyes what his ears had heard of before. He saw God, and that was enough. God's speeches have the effect of revealing God to Job. And again, as, an, uh, uh, as another preacher has put it, Job now sees what God is like and he fears God in a way that he never did before. I think this shows God's wisdom to us. This is the moment that wisdom is revealed. These final chapters are showing us that God is more concerned with his relationship with Job than in answering all of his questions. God is more concerned that Job related him properly than for Job to know the answers to all things. If you're a Christian today, you have a wonderful and special privilege. Because of Jesus' death for us, and because of Jesus' resurrection as king, we have access to God as our father. We have an intimacy with God that generations before Christ yearned for. We have intimacy with God as his Children. We are invited into his presence with him forever. We have his name on us. He has his name on us. We belong to him. But the book of Job warns us not to take that for granted. We are warned not to be too demanding like Job. We have intimacy with God, but we must not treat God flippantly or too casually. We must never forget that we are creatures and he is the creator. You see, when suffering and trials hit us, your world caves in. Seasons of suffering are some of the most profound and dark in life. And if you are young and you haven't yet experienced that, you just need to keep living and eventually you'll be in one of those dark seasons of life. And when you get there, everything stops. Everything becomes about you. And it becomes just so hard and intense. Uh, In the play Hamilton, uh, one of my favorite plays, uh, I'm obsessed with the album and I keep listening to it much to the um, delight of my wife. Uh, One of my favorite lyrics in that entire show comes at the moment of intense grief for two of the main characters in the show. And they sing together. There are moments that the words don't reach. There are there is suffering too terrible to name. The moments when you're in so deep it feels easier to just swim down. Have you ever experienced that? There are those who've gone through intense seasons of suffering who know what this is like. Who know that feeling of drowning? and feeling like it's just going to be easier to go down than it is to try and struggle back up. I know that there are some of us who are wrestling with mental illness, wondering if they'll wake up the next day and want to take their own life because it's just too hard to carry on. I know there are some of us who know the grief of losing a father or a mother or a child four days after birth. There are some among us who have suddenly lost husbands and wives who have watched with grief in all of these things. And in the middle of our pain and grief the world closes in and we can become completely lost in ourselves and our problems. But no matter how dark and difficult things may be these final chapters in Job remind us that there is never an excuse to be disrespectful, to be presumptuous or demanding of God. You can pour out your grief to God, yes. You can slam your fist in raw grief, yes. You can express your confusion and your sorrow to him. You can complain about your circumstances. You can unload your troubles to him. That's what we saw a few weeks ago. Now, these things may feel a bit unnatural for us, even for us culturally. But Job doesn't repent of that, nor does God rebuke him for that. God can handle that level of outpouring. But what Job repents of is that he overstepped the bounds. He lost his reverence and awe of God that God deserved. And for us, we need to remember our place as well. God is God. We are not. God is the judge. We do not judge him. Friends, if you're tuning in today or even here among us and you're not a believer, can I ask why? Can I gently put something to you? If you're feeling a bit convicted by this and you're feeling a bit judged... Uh, I don't want to apologize for that because I don't know your circumstances. That may be the Holy Spirit convicting you. But I know that for some non-believers, there is a thread of arrogance that says and that rejects God and consistently thinks that they can do a better job of running the world than God. In the face of tragedies and suffering that we see in this world, I kind of get that. I saw some really terrible vision the other day of uh, the pandemic that's hitting India. I get that you can look at that and go, God, why are you letting that happen? If I was you, that would not, I would not mess that up. But if you're not a believer, can I ask, can you answer any of God's questions that he poses to Job in these final chapters? And be honest with yourself. As much as we might think we could do a better job of running this world, there is a lot about this world and about life that we just do not understand. The questions that God asked Job were humbling. So do they humble you? You Job discovered that the more he knew God, the more humble one becomes before him. So if you cannot honestly answer any of God's questions, then might I suggest that God is calling you to humble reverence and awe of him. He revealed himself, He has revealed himself to you today in, his, in the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. So can I urge you to find out more about Jesus? We're about to begin a Christianity Explained course. Know the God of this universe and what he wants from you. My final word to the believer here today. Over the past few weeks, we haven't really tackled the issue of suffering and evil. Uh, We've talked a lot more about wisdom, and I think that's by design, because I do think that the book of Job is actually primarily about wisdom and the limits of human wisdom. Suffering and evil are a big theme, but they seem to be the vehicle by which the major theme of wisdom is presented. But here in God's answers to Job come a very reassuring answer to the problem of evil and suffering. Now, God's answers do not give us a neat and tidy system to answer the problem. So when your non-Christian friend looks at that Indian and says, what is God doing with that? Well, we can't exactly go to the book of Job and go, well, A plus B equals C, here you go, this is the reason. It doesn't quite work that way. But what the book of Job does give us is that it reveals to us who God is. He is the sovereign God, the one and only. and he, and, to, and all mysteries... Are his mysteries, even the mystery of suffering? And that means when life smashes us and when we go through suffering and when we see it, we can still bow down in worship of God. We can trust and cling onto that trust in the confusion and the pain. Because knowing God in the middle of our pain is more important than knowing why we are going through that pain. Even when there are unanswered questions that our minds grapple with, God is still enough to satisfy our hearts. And we can know that our pain and suffering will not go on forever because we belong to God. We can have this assurance not just here from the words of God in the book of Job, but also in the gospel message we hold on to. In the book of Job, God permitted an evil to happen. He commanded it, controlled it, and used it for his good purposes. And we see so clearly in the gospel the same thing. The most evil deed in all of human history. The depth of depravity, the deepest depth of depravity, the moment where Satan looked like he had won, the moment where Jesus, the darling of heaven, was hung on a cross. Even in that most evil and heinous moment, All of that happened, as the Apostle Peter would later say, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God never loses his control. Oops is not in his vocabulary. And from that evil moment came a good that none of his disciples saw coming, even though Jesus had been preaching it ever since they knew him. The salvation of the world. And if that good came through that son, through his son, then we can have the assurance that all the pain and trials and suffering of our lives will be used for his good purposes as well. And we can trust him to the end. And you know what? Maybe all of our, your answers and your questions, or maybe all of your questions will not be answered by him at the end. But like Job, we will see God face to face one day. And he will wipe away every tear with his own hand. And we know that for those who love God, all things, even the painful things, work together for good. For, the, for those who are called according to his purpose. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you again that you spoke to Job. And as mysterious and strange as these words have been, we pray that you'll help us to see your wisdom in them, that you wanted your servant Job to relate to you rightly, that you wanted relationship with him more than just answering his questions. So help us to see that truth as well that it's more important to know you than it is to know all the answers to our questions, especially in the midst of pain and trial. Help us to cling on to your goodness, to remember your goodness revealed through your Son, Jesus. We pray that you'll you'll help us to be a church as well as we seek to love and care for each other in these times too, as we keep pointing each other to the goodness of the gospel and our future hope. And we pray you'll help us to persevere to the end, whatever questions we might have, to see you face to face, to be satisfied for all eternity. And we ask that you help us to do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.